Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 59, Siberia Needs an Intervention. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed spending the past two episodes covering high-level politicking, I really should get to the actual main event of this batch of episodes and talk about the Siberian expedition. On August 2nd, 1918, the Japanese government formally announced to its people that their army, in cooperation with their allies, would enter Siberia to provide security to the region in order to allow the Czech Legion to return home, to safeguard the people living there, and to prevent Germany from exerting any influence there through the tens of thousands of former POWs still stuck in the region. A single Japanese division would be its contribution, and it would be joined by similar forces provided by their allies. Together, they would not favor any one political faction in the area, and their operations would have a strictly humanitarian character. On paper, everything was perfectly admirable in its intent, but the divisions between the parties involved that I agonized over at the end of last week would banish those strictly humanitarian objectives and disillusion a public who had been fed the feel-good story in order to secure their support. Already on the 3rd of August, Takashi was being advised by his contacts in the government that the military was organizing the big intervention he had been afraid of all along. On the 4th, he confronted Taruchi about it, warning the tired old general about crossing both the Americans and himself. The people, too, were not terribly keen on their boys in uniform being sent north. I know I just spent two episodes breaking down the process of actually getting the whole thing off the ground, but the average citizen was unaware about all the secret negotiations and intrigues going on in Tokyo. They would, at best, have access to public pronouncements and discussions that were printed, which would very much so not include all the dissension, nor would it have included the army's desired big intervention. The deployment of just one division caused protests as families tried to block trains to stop their sons from being sent away to unforgiving Russia. I remember a few episodes back when I discussed the rice riots in the back half of 1918? This is concurrent to that. People were hungry, they were miserable, and they were not happy about losing someone for a time who could help provide at home, or God forbid, maybe even lose them permanently. But the army wasn't about to stop short now that the floodgates had been even slightly open. As the 1st Division filtered into Vladivostok over the course of August, the army deployed troops already in Manchuria on the 14th to Manjuli. Once there, they linked up with Semenov's hodgepodge troops and pressed across the border into Siberia. The agreement not to expand operations had lasted a mere 12 days. Hara and the United States both called this out, and Taruchi explained that this movement was not considered part of the expedition agreed to on the 2nd of August, and thus not subject to the agreement, which was a very dangerous game he was playing there. Uh, the truth was worse, as the army had seen an opening of political weakness at home in the Japanese government and decided to act independently. The rice riots were quickly spreading out of control all over Japan, and Taruchi was unable to contain the situation. So the military saw that the civilian part of the government was otherwise occupied and decided to take their shot. Hara, for his part, was by that time angling to take over the prime minister's spot himself and so did not pick a fight with the military, opting to remain quiet and see how things played out. Might seem strange that I spent two episodes covering him playing hardball over the expedition, but once it got going, he totally backed off due to a bigger opportunity presenting itself. And that's politics. And the rice riots were every bit the crisis the military and Hara thought them to be. 
Troops were deployed to control the protesters, and Terucci lost popularity by the day. The Prime Minister, still just as sick and tired as he'd been at the start of the year when he first offered his resignation, now had little else to offer. Yamagata now had to consider who to replace him. While the old Genro was instinctively opposed to party politicians, Hara was his ultimate choice. Hara might have been a commoner and an upstart, but he did also share Yamagata's conservative stances at home and moderate outlook on foreign relations. He was, more so than anyone else, acceptable. On September 16th, he sent his number two, General Tanaka Gichi, to discuss the conditions of Hara assuming the premiership. The meeting was important because not only did Hara interview well enough for Tanaka to pass on his approval, the two actually hit it off and agreed to start a political partnership once Hara was in office. Tanaka wanted to restore the army's prestige and respect in the eyes of the people, and Hara, for his part, was eager for the support of the military once he became prime minister. Again, the vast majority of Japanese politicians, including Hara, were pro-military by nature. They just didn't want to launch costly and open-ended adventures. Which, yeah, they were at the start of one, but they didn't especially like it. The alliance between the two would also lead to a notable evolution in Tanaka's politics, which was important as he would carry on Hara's work after the latter was assassinated. The Rice riots really spooked Tanaka, and he was young enough not to take for granted the privileged position of the military in society, and knew that it could conceivably go away if its status wasn't safeguarded. To that end, he would not only work with Hara, he would himself get into party politics as well eventually joining with the Sayukai down the road. His background as a military man oddly might have helped prepare him for diverging so starkly from his mentor Yamagata. He had only known the army, and was thus far less enmeshed in the wheeling and dealing going on within the greater Chochu faction. He saw which way the wind was blowing, and instead of throwing in with a system of networking that was fading away, he struck out and built a second career in public service that held more promise. Yamagata never quite understood why he went down that road, but he was also finally on the way out, so that didn't matter too much. On September 21st, Teruchi finally resigned. Yamagata tried to backpedal at the last minute and get Seonji to take the spot, figuring that an ex-party politician was the better choice after all, but Seonji pointedly refused and told Yamagata to buckle down and appoint Hara, who finally became prime minister on the 27th, with Tanaka as his army minister. That was to prove fortuitous, as the army minister was usually the most disruptive voice in the cabinet. The elevation of Hara was seen as a big step forward for democratic politics, as now there would be a party captain, and not appointees by the elite. It was to be a quote-unquote responsible government. It was called that because it was supposed to do answer to its constituents. This also meant there were public expectations to meet the demands of the people. The challenges facing him were considerable. Internally, the nation was still suffering and was ambivalent at best and hostile at worst to the intervention that was already in full swing. And he also had to reckon with the displeasure of the United States to quick escalation by the Japanese. While they had advised that such an escalation would be grounds for a termination on their part of the operation, that was apparently a bluff, and they stayed on while protesting Japan's actions. Meanwhile, on the ground, things had pretty much gone Japan's way. The two prongs of the advance met halfway between their starts, just north of Manchuria, and there hadn't been anything in the way of real resistance. Another advance reached Irkutsk without any issues. 
The Czechs hadn't opposed their movements, and the Bolsheviks had been dispersed. Everything seemed to actually be going okay, and for a number of months, things were quiet in the area. On November 11th, though, World War I ended, and the German threat passed. Now the Entente had to remake their mission statement, which became an anti-Bolshevik one, although nobody was willing to go all in and say that they were there to fight the Reds specifically. The lack of a clearly stated direction just months into the operation would do much to undermine its support among all the participants. Then on November 18th, the British got up to their old interventionist tricks and deposed the provisional government of Russia that had coalesced in the city of Omsk, using a group of Cossacks as their proxies. This coincided with the arrival of Admiral Kolchak in the city, and he was duly appointed by the government members who had not been arrested in the coup as the supreme ruler of Russia, which in effect meant that he commanded the motley array of white forces, stretching in a line from the Urals to the Pacific, and was loosely backed at the moment by the Czech Legion. Once secure in his new position, he would begin marching his troops back west towards European Russia, and his fateful confrontation with the Bolsheviks, which I'll touch on in the Soviet episodes. But suffice to say, it didn't work out for him in the long run. But that would be for the future. At the moment, things weren't looking half bad. Definitely better than six months previous when Moscow held the whole of Trans-Siberia. Hara, though, had no intention of getting embroiled in the Russian Civil War. And in fact, by the end of 1918 and the start of 1919, began looking for ways to rein in the army. He used the pretext of everything having gone super smoothly in the occupation of eastern Siberia as grounds to have the army start bringing troops back home, an argument they couldn't debate with a straight face. Everything had gone really smoothly, and, well, people wanted to bring more troops back home. Japan withdrew half of its forces from the east over the course of January 1919. This provided no small relief to the anxious home front, but the assessment that there was no threat in the region proved to be optimistic. The Red Army in the area had either dispersed or fled into the hinterlands to the north, and before long started partisan attacks. As they usually do, the attacks started small, but escalated once the Reds became more confident. At an isolated position some 200 miles north of Vladivostok, a battalion of around 300 Japanese troops were beset by 6,000 partisans on the night of February 25, 1919, and into the early morning of the 26th. On that cold Siberian night, the Japanese troops desperately fought a confused defense against their attackers. This was the real horror facing the Japanese soldiers in Siberia. They were split into isolated units scattered over a huge geographic area, and while it would take a much larger force of partisans to overtake them, such a force would be fighting at a time and place of its choosing, which meant night attacks in the cold and in the middle of nowhere where rapid help wasn't available. By sunrise, a fresh regiment had arrived to relieve them, but the oncoming troops were too late. The entire battalion had been slaughtered, and they couldn't do anything but drive off the remaining partisans in the area. The defeat predictably increased calls in the press to withdraw from the expedition, and again raised the question of why exactly they were there if the Germans had been beaten and the Czechs didn't appear in a hurry to leave. The army, though, showed no indication that their commitment to the endeavor had been shaken, and skirmishes would continue for the duration of the expedition. The Americans, though, were increasingly annoyed with the Japanese. The entire reason they had specified a small number of troops in the first place was to make sure it didn't turn into a military invasion, and the Japanese had messed that up in the very first month. Now they had partisan armies roaming the hinterlands, something the U.S. troops were not eager to deal with. 
It also didn't help that Semenov and another Russian commander named Kalmykov had set themselves up as rulers in Chita and Khabarovsk, respectively. Both were technically under the jurisdiction of Kolchak, but were acting as tyrants in their new domains. They would interfere with the transportation of Entente troops, steal cargo on the railways, and brutalize their own populaces. The story of most of 1919 for the Siberian expedition was one of frustration. The Entente members were getting tired of the very affair they had talked themselves into, and were basically milling around aimlessly when they weren't fending off partisan attacks. The Japanese and Americans were deeply suspicious of each other, as both feared the other was hoping to take over the area economically. Kolchak also wasn't doing well to the West, and his attempts to push past the Urals stalled out, and the Czechs finally looked as though they were ready to go back home. And then back in the home islands, Hara and Tanaka were still trying to get the army's general staff to just listen to them. The army had withdrawn troops at the start of the year, but were directing the remainder without any input from the civilian leadership. Where the troops were deployed, what missions they carried out to root out partisans and protect the area, all of it was being decided solely by the top generals. Hara's frustrated efforts to assert civilian control were more important, too, because he was governing as an elected politician. In other cases, the military's independent streak could be countered by them being part of a larger network that could come to some understanding. Now that wasn't the case, and Hara had to demonstrate that the old ways could not continue, but the army stonewalled him at every turn. A further blow to Hara's efforts came due to reverses in the ongoing Russian Civil War. Kolchak's troops were halted and in the fall of 1919 were thrown back into Siberia. By November 1919, the white capital of Omsk had fallen. Now even Tanaka was forced to recommend that more troops be sent back in to shore up the area east of Lake Baikal. Hara was against the idea, but there was pressure in the government as officials were terrified of a Bolshevik government to their north looking for a little payback for invading them. Better to fight them there than in Manchuria or Korea. Japan wasn't going to get any help on that front, though. The Czechs were spent and going home. The British and French withdrew in November, and the Americans had already come to the decision that they were going to leave, too. Sentiments at home also ran the same way, and most Japanese favored withdrawing from a situation that could not bring any benefit to them. The white cause was lost in Russia, and with it, the dream of setting up a friendly government that would owe Japan big time. By the end of winter 1919-1920, the situation was even more grim on the ground. The white forces had been ground down in western Siberia. Kolchak had been arrested and executed, and the major cities along the Trans-Siberian effectively went their own way, with most favoring making an accommodation with Moscow. Well, except for Semenov and Chita, but that's because he had made his bed. Kalmykov was arrested and shot like Kolchak, so Japan's list of allies in the area had dwindled to... about nothing. It was a really good time to get out. But they didn't, and would stay on for almost another three years in an increasingly impossible situation. The main reason was because the general staff was actually emboldened by the Entente withdrawal. The Westerners had constantly gone back and forth over objectives and limited how hard they could commit. With them gone, Japan could do as they always wanted and go full lone wolf. And if Hara didn't like it, they just have to find a way to commit so hard that he couldn't back out or risk looking weak. The mindset that would lead to rogue army officers invading Manchuria in the early 30s 
was in full effect here. They weren't about to go so far, so fast, but the broad strokes were there. The wisdom, though, of sticking around was thrown into question during a siege of the town of Nikolivsk, which was situated where the Amur River met the Pacific Ocean. The town had been occupied by the Japanese with a garrison of about 600 men, as well as miscellaneous white-aligned troops. But the town had been cut off by a railway, and its only contact was the occasional boat and its radio station. Opposing them were 4,000 partisans led by Yakov Triapitsky. It's worth stopping and pointing out why I've been saying partisans and not Bolshevik or Red Army troops, because in this case, the Irregulars didn't fall into that category. They were definitely against the Japanese, but Triapitsin was an anarchist who was also anti-Bolshevik, something that would not serve him well down the road. On January 31, 1920, he formally asked for control of the town from the garrison. On the 5th of February, he assaulted the radio station outside the city. His men had gotten hold of some artillery pieces and bombarded it, cutting off all direct contact between the garrison and the larger Japanese army. Over the course of a month and a half, the partisans wore down the defenders, before taking the town over completely on March 18th. 136 Japanese soldiers survived to be taken prisoner, while the whites were marched onto the frozen Amur and shot. The main force of Japanese had no idea any of this was happening. The city's port was still frozen over and inaccessible, and the only way to reach the town overland with the railroad cut was with dog sleds. They knew from the final radio broadcasts in early February that something really, really bad was going on up there, but had no way of getting there with a force large enough to make any difference until June. When those soldiers completed their journey, they found a nightmare. Triapitsin and his band had set the prison containing the Japanese soldiers on fire, burning all of them alive. He had then done the same to the entire town after looting it, afterwards fleeing north into the hinterland. The press back in Japan had paid as close attention to the situation as possible, a no small feat given that no news was coming out beyond a brief contact that, that was made with Triapitsin back in April, confirming the prisoners were still alive at that time, or so he said. Once the town had been reached and the grisly details came to light, the newspapers had a field day as the nation jumped to get the full story of the lost readout. Even as early as spring, the knowledge that the garrison had probably been destroyed hardened the Japanese general staff further, and when the final American troops left on April 1st, they turned to the business of securing the Far East their way. Up to this point, they had operated in such a manner as to not provoke the other Entente members or totally shatter the illusion this operation wasn't a military occupation. Those days were now gone. The Japanese army began direct occupations, starting in the stretch of territory running between Vladivostok and Khabarovsk, where the Japanese engaged local Russian troops on April 4th and 5th. Crackdowns were made and suspected communists were rounded up. City administrations were put on notice, and in Vladivostok, the local Korean community saw 300 people arrested on suspicion of anti-Japanese activity. The army declared that no Russian troops could operate within 30 kilometers of either side of a railway. This was all unilaterally ordered by the general staff. Hara said nothing so as not to force a showdown he would probably lose. With Japan flexing its muscles, Moscow was caught with other priorities that prevented a direct confrontation. Their troops had reached Irkutsk, but the war with Poland was taking a much higher priority. So, Lenin opted to try and take a more diplomatic approach and sponsored the creation of the Far Eastern Republic, or the FER, 
yet another government meant to unify the cities along the Trans-Siberian. The Japanese were not impressed, but in the aftermath of the massacre at Nikolaevsk, a change in approach was called for. The Hara government had come under intense public pressure to get the army under control, and his responsible government, well, make it more responsible. It was decided to take a step forward and a step back. Eastern Siberia would be evacuated, much to the protest of the army. But they would double down on the Far East, reoccupying Nikolaevsk with an even larger garrison and also occupying the northern half of Sakhalin Island. The withdrawing part of the plan sent the general staff into a tizzy, and Tanaka's attempts to have them become obedient to civilian power pushed them into near-open rebellion. Over the summer of 1920, it looked like the government would be stuck in another crisis that would sap precious time and energy. But Yamagata was still around to play the adjudicator and arrange for the army to accept the Western withdrawal, while Tanaka would drop his latest attempt to curb the general's independence. The evacuations were conducted between August 16th and the 24th. Semenov declared he'd hold out alone in Chita, but the FER started moving into the vacuum left by the Japanese, and he was obliged to beat a hasty retreat. This time, he didn't even bother extricating his army, and they were left to hoof it back to Manchuria on their own, where they were disarmed by the Chinese. Simonov got back in touch with the Japanese, and they sent him to Vladivostok to act as their proxy leader there. However, nobody in town wanted anything to do with them. He turned around as quick as he had come and just went back to Manchuria. On September 1st, 1920, the last Czech troops finally left Vladivostok, almost two years after the end of fighting in World War I. With them went the last internationally recognized justification for the continued Japanese presence. Hara continued to successfully press for the operation to be reduced in size. Nikolaevsk, so recently regarrisoned, was abandoned again starting September 18th. The remaining army would also pull back from Khabarovsk to a position halfway between there and Vladivostok. It might have seemed a win for Hara, but he came off looking the worse for it. It was a half-measure that didn't end anything and actually left Japan exposed, holding an ever more worthless piece of real estate. And abandoning Nikolaevsk just after going back there made it seem like nobody had a clear plan. Ostensibly, they had gone back there to avenge the massacred troops, but the FER had apprehended Triapitsin and had him shot already. The Japanese didn't make distinctions between Russian factions and demanded more compensation. The FER, though, weren't willing to take responsibility, and Japan had no way to induce them to do so. As a result, Ara just looked weak. The new sticking point over a final Japanese withdrawal was the continued concern over the Bolsheviks interfering in their Asian empire. I've brought this up several times, and the fear might seem a bit overblown in hindsight, and their allies certainly thought the same, but the way the Japanese saw it was nobody else was going to have to deal with a communist neighbor. The elites of the country entertained visions of communism spreading via Vladivostok not just into the East Asian mainland, but the home islands as well. Due to their paranoia of communism, they couldn't bring themselves to leave, even as the other major powers began pushing them to do so. Lenin had intended the FER as a temporary buffer state to allay Japanese concerns, but Hara refused to budge on his, admittedly correct, view that they were puppets of Moscow. He might have been against the intervention before it was launched, but now that the years had passed and it was clear that the Bolsheviks were going to be right there on the other side of the border, he couldn't bring himself to leave. Hara, though, was running out of excuses to stay. Ostensibly, he was operating off a declaration made by his government early into the occupation, adding, ensuring stability as a condition of the Japanese presence. 
but that was unhelpfully open-ended and didn't really impress anybody. Ira's position was not helped by Tanaka having a heart attack in February 1921. It wasn't the end for him by any means, and he'll still be a big part of Japanese politics, but he was out of the picture for a while, which would deprive Hara of a key ally during months of stormy debate during the first half of 1921. By May, the unpopularity and seeming pointlessness had reached such an extent that even Hara could no longer resist the will of his own cabinet to leave. In a conference with military leaders from across the whole empire during May 1921, he advised them that not only would Siberia be evacuated, but also northern Manchuria. That last bit actually wasn't as much of a problem for them as you might imagine. Uh, Manchuria had fallen under the sway of the Chinese warlord Zheng Zhulin, who was proving to be a capable leader and who could resist the communists and also seemed willing to work as a partner with the Japanese, which suited the general staff just fine. More on him in the upcoming China episodes. With the decision having been made to leave, you would think that would be that. The process, though, turned into a 16-month grind as Japan negotiated with the FER government in Chita on the conditions of handing over Vladivostok and the surrounding area. Some of the generals went crying to Yamagata about it, but the ailing general advised them that the adventure was coming to a close, if only belatedly. Meanwhile, the Japanese-occupied Far East would see one last spasm of intrigue. The remnants of the White Army and associated refugees had been steadily gathering in Vladivostok, literally their last harbor in Russia. They launched a coup on March 26th and took the town over from the city authorities that had been operating under the Japanese occupation. They established a new government, an army, and prepared to carry on the fight. The Japanese had just announced they were leaving in the future, which was kind of awkward. The Japanese tried to bring in Semenov to take control, but he was met with derision by the other white leaders. He would eventually leave the city in September 1921 and wound up back in Manchuria again. He would live mostly quietly at the graces of the Japanese, and for some reason in 1945, when the Soviets invaded, he made no attempt to leave. The Soviets had not forgotten him, though, and had him shot soon after. This last white government tried to assert what authority they could. They sent an expedition of their own and landed on the southern Kamchatka Peninsula and laid claim to northern Sakhalin. All the while, though, the Japanese negotiated with the FER like they weren't even there. These talks were still in progress when on November 4, 1921, Hara was assassinated by a right-wing railway worker who took exception to Hara's political fights with the military. Takashi Korikiyo was selected as his successor, being high up in the Sayokai and also the finance minister, as well as enjoying the support of Sayonji. Unfortunately for him, he was also much more outspokenly populist in his politics and lacked Hara's full control over the Sayukai. The party would not break apart, but factions within it would work against each other. More on all that next episode. This further stalled out talks with the FER and dragged the expedition out still further. If you're getting sick of it dragging out with no point, believe me, everybody else was too at the time. The Whites tried to launch an offensive northwards towards Khabarovsk during the winter of 1921-22. And while they made some progress, I don't know what their ultimate intentions were, as they sure as hell weren't marching all the way to Chita, much less Moscow. The attackers took Khabarovsk in December 1921, but were checked afterwards, and by spring 1922, the Whites were retreating back the way they had come. Meanwhile, the Japanese began their final talks with the FER in Moscow 
to finally wind this whole waste of time down. Talks in April, though, were slow to produce results, because of course, mostly getting hung up on what to do with the piles of munitions still sitting in Vladivostok's port, and if the Japanese would stand aside while FER troops moved into the city. The Japanese didn't want to stand aside until a settlement was reached, and the Reds were reluctant to cut a deal with a party they didn't trust to not go back on their terms and throw right back in with the Whites. The result was a stalemate with Red troops holding at the perimeter of the last patch of the Far East Japan was still hanging on to. It was a period of monotonous policing for the Japanese troops, who were well aware their days in the region were numbered, and started getting antsy to just go home. That feeling of pointlessness sapped the morale of the occupiers, and discipline started becoming a problem. The unsatisfactory performance of the Japanese army at countering the guerrilla war over the past few years was also a big topic that came up within the army, but the officer corps opted to suppress discussion instead of actually confronting their problems. This tendency to cover up issues in order for the officers to protect each other from scrutiny would only get worse as time went on, especially as the army became more insular and monolithic in how it conducted itself. By the end of May 1922, it was becoming increasingly obvious that the endgame was fast approaching for the Siberian intervention. Within Vladivostok, the members of the white government there were at each other's throats, and their ability to resist the Reds on their own was wholly gone. Back in Japan, the intervention would claim its third prime minister as Takashi was forced to resign on June 6th after factions of his own party within the cabinet refused his request to step down and allow themselves to be replaced by men of his choosing. His hasty exit discredited the idea of his replacement coming from the Sayukai again, and Sayonji stepped into the kingmaker role that Yamagata had previously held, and this time backed the Navy minister Keito Tamasaburo. He was a lifelong military man, but also a supporter of the internationalist approach to Japan's foreign policy, and so was acceptable to the more liberal-minded members of Japan's establishment. His ministry was something of a throwback as he stacked his cabinet with members of the House of Peers, snubbing his supporters in the Sayukai, and stepping back from responsible government for the moment. His first major policy decision came on June 24th, when he announced that by the end of October, Japanese troops would be completely withdrawn from the Russian Far East. The situation was growing more critical by the day, not just because the Soviet state was rapidly starting to sort through its own internal issues, but also because collapsing morale and disobedience among the Japanese soldiers was becoming too widespread to hide. The army enjoyed its independent existence at arm's length from the government, but that was based on public goodwill and trust that had already been critically undermined by the unpopular foreign adventure, and if news that soldiers had grown so fed up that they no longer would serve under the current leadership, that might prove fatal to the army's independence. The generals didn't want to go. They finally perceived that they had no other options. Keep in mind also that 1921-22 was the height of the post-war recession that brought the economy to its knees. Even in its reduced state, the occupation couldn't be supported for much longer without doing economic harm that would have been unacceptable to the populace. The announcement of the withdrawal immediately set off a panic in Vladivostok. The whites there now truly knew that their days were numbered, and many began fleeing as best they could. A hard core remained in the city, and the last strength of their army sallied out again in September to strike against partisans in the hinterland. By the 11th, though, their operation had been halted, and by the end of the month, they had to abandon their last offensive. From there, the fortunes of the white government unraveled. The Japanese were already on their way out, and the whites had to conscript every unfortunate male they could get their hands on into their army. 
On October 9th, the Reds drove them from the city of Spassk, 100 miles from Vladivostok. By the 15th, even the diehards agreed they had to evacuate, and the last white government ceased to exist. Now that the jig was up, there was still a little question of the weapons depots still sitting around in Vladivostok. They hadn't been moved for years, and due to wishful thinking that they'd be used by a successful white army someday, there had been no preparations made to move them. The British stepped in one last time to ask if the Japanese couldn't push back their departure date to evacuate the munitions. Kato, to his credit, sternly declined this request. Less to his credit, the Japanese press published stories in September accusing the army leadership of giving some of the weapons to Zhang Zhulin, the Manchurian warlord. He was being built up by the army as a client of Japan and was already getting support, so it wasn't crazy that some weapons in the Russian Far East would go missing and wind up in his hands, which was something the British didn't want as they backed a rival of Zhang's in China's factional wars, and also it was in violation of a Japanese pledge not to do any arms trafficking. The story caused an uproar that led to a sheepish general staff to admit that some weapons probably wound up in the hands of the whites, but that they didn't go to China, a claim that was so weak that even the nationalists didn't go for it. This incident, coming out practically on the eve of the Japanese withdrawal, brought to the forefront how the army brazenly operated outside civilian control outside of the home islands. And if you've been wondering on why I've been focusing on this little historical incident, beyond it being a good, you know, case study of politics in action during those days, it's because the expedition laid bare to the public how powerless its civilian government was compared to the military. Hara and politicians like him had never wanted a huge intervention, and neither had the majority of the people. That its escalation couldn't be resisted critically undermined the people's faith in their own government, at a critical moment when representative politics was just beginning to come into its own. The final stages of the evacuation played out like many hasty imperial retreats. The Japanese civilians in Vladivostok were crammed on board ships, bringing with them only what they could carry. Accommodations were not planned out, and the refugees were dumped off onto the port of Saruga on the western coast of Honshu. On October 25th, Red troops entered Vladivostok, and the last contingent of Japanese troops formally handed the city and its weapons depots over. The lousy affair had finally come to an end. There were still some loose ends to be tied up. The Japanese army wound down its presence in northern Manchuria, handing control of the railways over to Zhang with promises of friendship. The FER would dissolve itself as a quasi-independent entity on November 14th and joined with the Soviet Union the next day. Prickly negotiations would drag on between the Japanese and Soviets over the terms of their relationship going forward, most notably over the continued Japanese occupation of the northern end of Sakhalin Island, which would continue until 1925. The ultimate results of the intervention for Japan were far from positive. All their investment and interests in the Russian Far East were taken from them, and now they faced an understandably antagonized power to their north. As already mentioned, the out-controlled general staff undermined faith in civilian government with their antics, and public opinion for the moment was geared against militarism and also the factionalism within the government. With the Taisho emperor incapacitated with his ailments, the key center of power in Japan had been unable to nudge the disconnected pieces of the state into a clear direction and with the last of the old oligarchs like Yamagata entering their twilight years during the intervention, there were no successors of his stature. Sayonji would try and fill the role of political referee, but he lacked Yamagata's clout. Japan would be entering into a changed world, suffering from recession, 
political fragmentation, and a disillusioned populace. It also changed Japan's approach to its imperial goals. Public discontent had been fueled by a hostile press, who questioned the value of continued acquisitions. This was noted among the militarists as something to be dealt with when conditions allowed. In their minds, discourse in the country would have to become more controlled. And while bad relations with Russia were the norm since their war in 1905, it was after the intervention that Japanese imperialists started to wake up to the danger that the United States posed to their ability to act independently. Relations during the intervention were not good, and the Americans had at every turn tried to curb any action the Japanese took that might have been construed as expansionist. Their interest in keeping the Japanese from having a free hand on the Asian mainland was now something that had to be reckoned with. With Taisho Japan entering into this changed environment, we can pick back up with the main narrative for the Japanese and return to their experiences during the 20s. That's where we'll start again next week, so join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.